0: So in order to support our show, we need the help of some great advertisers, and we want to make sure those advertisers are ones you'll actually want to pay attention to and hear about. But we need to learn a little more about you to make that happen, and I would love to learn more about the audience. So go to PodSurvey, that's P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y, PodSurvey.com slash James, and take a quick totally anonymous survey that will help us get to know you better that way we can bring on advertisers and and even content that you won't want to skip so once you've completed the quick survey you can enter for a chance to win a hundred dollar amazon gift card terms and conditions apply again that's podsurvey.com slash james james thanks for your help this isn't your average business podcast and he's not your average host This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show.
1: First of all, I I remind people every day that everyone in America has had their identity stolen already, including myself. Because we know that statistically that over a billion identities have been stolen. There's only 340 million people live in the country, including babies and uh, children. So uh, you have to assume your identity is already stolen. The question is, will they ever use yours? or is yours something they want to use, or are they going to use somebody before you? Uh, When you hack into Home Depot and Target and you steal credit cards and debit card information, you have to get rid of it immediately because it has an extremely short shelf life. But if I steal your name, your social security number, and your date of birth, you can't change your name. You can't change your social security number. You can't change your date of birth. So the longer I hold it, the more valuable it becomes when I go to sell it. There always is a three or four year delay before that information comes to surface. So all that is just open doors to hackers. And if you look at any company from the largest corporation in America to that plumbing shop up in New Rochelle, there are weak soft spots in every company. And all hackers do is look for that. Because then we design, a. for example, the device you talk to in the morning. What time of day is it? What's on TV tonight? Order me this from Amazon. That's a voice-activated device. So a hacker only has to manipulate it slightly to then listen to everything you say in your house the minute you start saying any word. How would the hacker manipulate that? They're able to do it because it has no technology in it to prevent it. And what I have found in my career is that we invent a lot of great technologies without ever going to the final step. And the final step is to ask the simple question, how would someone use this in a negative way? companies are only interested in one what's my return on investment and how quick can I get to the marketplace with this product instead of saying how can I prevent someone from misusing it
0: so so I think it's important to state you know back in the day 50 years ago uh, you were one of the most wanted men in the US for being you know what they call a con artist right uh, you served time in jail, and then, as documented in book, movies, and so on, you advised the FBI, and then built a career advising banks, speaking, and now helping the AARP with this. Uh, if you were 18 years old right now and thinking to yourself, you know, I'm going to scam, what would you do? All right, we're going to start. So I have... Uh, Uh, I am a big fan of this man ever since I first read his book, probably in the early 1980s. I was either in junior high school or high school, but he wrote the book, which later became the movie Catch Me If You Can. The movie was done by Steven Spielberg. Leonardo DiCaprio plays the man sitting in front of me, Frank Abagnale. Frank, how's it going? Great. Thanks for having me. Now... You re- you have a new book, Scam Me If You Can. It's so great. It not only is it great. I don't even know. It's scary to read this book because when I read this book, there are some you you basically it's almost like this encyclopedia of scams, common scams that are occurring every day to maybe millions of people. And and I find that some of these I would never fall for. I can say but maybe I'm wrong I'm sure everybody who falls for a scam says "Oh, I would never fall for that but some of these scams I can fall for and have actually Uh, uh, and uh, you know do you mind if I ask you of of, you know set the stage by asking a few questions about your your early life and background particularly for those who didn't see the movie or read your first book yeah and let me
1: first start off by this is my fifth book Uh, all the books prior to this have all been about commercial fraud of embezzlement counterfeiting check forgery that would be more read by businesses and corporations. Um, the last five years, I've worked with a lot of crimes against the elderly with AARP, who has 38 million members, and they're very concerned about seniors being uh, ripped off. And so I really wrote this book on their behalf. All the funds for the book, the royalties, the advance, goes to AARP. And they just asked me to to take my knowledge and write a book about all these scams so they could help educate their members about how these scams work. And so that's how this book came to be. And it's really an ARP book. And it's basically, uh, in doing the five years of research for it, what was interesting is I found that millennials were actually more scammed more often than seniors,
0: but seniors lose more money because they have more money. Hmm. And and, uh, do you think seniors are more susceptible to being scammed? So millennials, yes, they're scammed more because there's a lot of Internet and digital scams that are kind of easy to fall for right Um, these so-called phishing attacks P H I S H I N G But do you think it is you know using kind of social tactics and persuasion you think it's easier to scam the elderly?
1: Yeah, sometimes because they're you know
0: many times they are in their 70s 80s. They're
1: lonely They don't get to speak to a lot of people so these can't scam artists get to know them on the phone You know, that's where all these romance scams start and they've more than doubled in the last couple of years since I've written the book. Um, and I think that they're more trusting, you know, and they're, because people are basically honest, they don't have a deceptive mind. So, you know, if you uh, go over and the phone's ringing and it says on the caller ID that it's the NYPD, you assume that it is a New York Police Department, so you pick it up. And then if they tell you that this is Sergeant so-and-so, we arrested your grandson on the West Side Highway, he was DWI. He was driving this kind of vehicle. He did have a passenger in the car. Her name was, and you know right away that's the girlfriend. You've met her. Um, he didn't want us to call his parents. They give you the parent's name. All this is to gain credibility.
0: And it's you all know, on Facebook, but all think, on Facebook. So they yeah. say,
1: and then so then eventually they just say, uh, he needs to post bail in the next couple of hours or have to spend the weekend in jail. Oh, no, no, I don't want that to happen. How do I do that? Well, if you just give me a credit card, I can post his bail. It's $500. And so people just immediately do it, but they, they make it so factual, so believable that the people on the other end, and I explained to them, of course, in the book that caller ID is the easiest thing to manipulate. I can make it say U.S. Treasury, IRS, whoever I want it to say. So, uh, so, but people don't know that unless you tell them that. And I, in all the books I've written, I have found that education is the most powerful tool to fighting crime. So whether i'm teaching fbi agents or i'm teaching banks or i'm teaching uh consumers if i say to you here's the scam here's how it works here's the red flag that you would recognize then next time that call comes you say no i've already read about this i know it's a grandparent scam i know this is how it works you're not going to fall for it but you have to educate yourself or otherwise you get victimized by it
0: right it's helpful to know basically again you list everything from like these romance scams to these <laughs> fake kidnapping scams, which is sort of similar to that police right. description to, um, you know, all sorts of types of identity theft and charity scams, loan scams, uh, yeah, I tried to cover everything in there. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's great. I almost feel like, you know, this is just as an aside for a marketing tactic for this book, you should do a slide share on LinkedIn of all, uh, each page being a different scam and, you know, what it is, how to recognize it, what to do. Good idea. It's like a
1: lot of people used to say to me, you ought to do a one-minute for radio, which is syndicated, but every Friday or whatever, there's a one-minute, two-minute piece where you talk about a scam that's going on. For example, right now, the most current scam is these student loan scams where they call you and say, No, oh, you have the student loan. Uh, we can help you pay that down. We can get it down and get it lower than what you actually owe but there's a $1,250 fee, and then it's $40 a month while we do this. And a lot of people are falling for that. Well, most of them, first of all, are are scams. The ones that are so-called quasi-legitimate are doing only what you could do yourself. You don't need them. It's kind of like when they tell you, I can fix all your credit card bills you owe. Well, you could do that. You just have time to call each credit card company and work out a deal with them. They're doing that, but they're charging you a lot of money to do it, so it's unnecessary. And some of them are scams. They don't do anything they just take your money. So, you know, every day there's another scam and it's always timely to what's going on at that particular time.
0: Right. And, li- and like you say, like, for instance, kind of the consolidating credit cards, that's a legit service. Many companies offer, but like, like you also mentioned, that can also be a scam. So there's this gray area. Yeah, it's it's a- not a gray area. Really? One's legit. One's, one's a scam, not- but by borrowing the tactics of a legit business, they can do everything right up until the point where they pay off the credit card company. Okay, they just right. keep your money. Right. And like, let's just take that case. How do you really know they're going to pay the credit card company? Well,
1: first of all, any credit card company will work with you because obviously it's better to have some money than no money. So if I say to a company, I owe you $300 on this credit card, but I can only afford to pay you $10 a month. They rather me pay them $10 a month and file bankruptcy and give them nothing. So they're gonna work with me, but I have to take the effort to call all of them and do all the work. Uh, those companies, that the legitimate ones, that's all they're basically doing on your behalf, but they're collecting a fee from you uh, to do it. The ones that are not legitimate are just collecting the fee and they never call anybody. They don't fix anything and your credit you know, just stays basically the same.
0: And, and so how would you, I guess the way you would avoid that is look to see that this is a le- legit credit card Consolidation yeah, what I, what I do is, is uh,
1: I use two resources that I find very effective. One is the Attorney General's, State Attorney General's Office. Uh, he and she are elected by the people of that state, and they each Attorney General's Office has huge consumer protection bureaus with highly trained uh, and educated people who keep track of all these companies, whether they're roofing companies, whether they're construction companies, whether they're collection companies. Or even charities so if i see a charity i'd like to give money to but i'm saying you know i'm not sure this is a legitimate charity uh, i can call their office and they'll tell me no it's not a legitimate charity i don't send any money to them and they'll say yes it is a legitimate charity and the better business bureau does it as well but so there are resources to go to so if i was going to use one of those services I would first go to the Better Business Bureau, ask them if there are any complaints against these companies. Do they know this company? Do they have a long history with the Better Business Bureau? And then if I had further doubts, I'd call the Adjourner's General's office. Same thing, have you had complaints about uh, this company? Same way you would go to Amazon to see how people rate a certain product. It's the same way you go there to say, what do you know about these people and how are they rated?
0: But, but the funny thing is like, let's say there's a satisfied customer. They don't, let's say a company has 100,000 satisfied com- customers and five unsatisfied customers. The, the 100,000 satisfied customers don't never say anything to anybody, <laughs> but the right. five unsatisfied ones tend to be the ones that go to the Better Business Bureau. And world. that's a
1: good point, and that's why I prefer the Attorney General's office where the Better Business Bureau is a business and they're only tracking those things about the complaints that people filed, where the Attorney General's Consumer Protection Bureau actually has investigated those companies and know whether those companies are legitimate or not
0: i did not know the better business bureau was a business i thought it, it was a government organization oh no
1: it's a it's a it's a basically a business run. and then you have the better business bureau of new york the better business bureau of the bronx better business bureau there are a lot of different companies but they're affiliated with the better business bureau but they run as a business and what happens is you own a company you join the better business bureau because you want to say i'm a member of the better business bureau and then the business business bureau keeps records of those complaints. So if I call and say this guy never fixed my roof and all that, they keep those records. But their customers are their merchants and the people they're doing that are doing business. Not really the consumers, not their customer. Their customers, their members, and the people who they do business with.
0: You know, an- another scam that you mentioned in here, and again, you list hundreds, and <laughs> it's it's worthy. Being aware of all of them and we'll discuss that awareness yeah. issue in a second. But you mentioned um these charity scams like a GoFundMe. Like, so for instance, you find the, the scammer finds a legitimate cause, like let's say someone lost their home in a fire and they set up a GoFundMe for that person. Everything is legitimate again, right up until the point where that person is supposed to deliver money to the charity case and they don't.
1: Well, that's what's that's what's very difficult with gofundme as you know we've had a number of cases of just people that were defrauding people they set it up and say that this person this happened to this person when it really didn't happen to them they're in on the scam just to get people to send them send money so with gofundme i think you have to be very careful about who you're giving money to and is it really going to that person uh that's been harmed so you know a lot of times those GoFundmes, I would only do that if I knew it to be a legitimate thing that actually happened to somebody, and I know that maybe it's if someone in my neighborhood had lost a child or something, and people got money to pay for a funeral or something, and I know that happened. It was in the news. I know the people in the neighborhood. You know, I and would. And then be you'd fine have to know that.
0: the person who's doing the. GoFundMe. Who's doing
1: the GoFundme Me is a legitimate person, and so you have to be. As I tell people every day, you can't rely on the police, you can't rely on the government, you can't rely on your bank. You have to be a little smarter consumer today. You have to be a little wiser consumer today. You have to investigate a little bit. You know, there's nothing wrong with being skeptical. It's a virtue. So you have to just say, you know, before I part with my money or part with information, I'm going to make sure I know who is on the other end.
0: It's so tricky because towards the end of this podcast, I'm going to describe two situations where in one case I got, I was 90% there where I almost got scammed a huge amount of money. And in the other case, I was about 50% there, but both will seem obvious when I describe it, but at the time it wasn't so obvious. And I think uh, this is the danger. Like, uh, again, someone I would say to myself, oh, I'm never going to get scammed. I don't click on those links. I don't right. answer those phone calls. And yet, Every now, everybody's got to kind of kind of has their their buttons that can be pressed. I feel
1: absolutely, and I, as I remind people all the time, I could be scammed. Anybody can be scammed. So I also do a podcast out of Washington D.C. every Wednesday for ARP out of their studios. It's called The Perfect Scam, and we have people who are scammed. But then we send an investigator out to meet those people, talk to those people, get their story on tape, and know that it actually happened. And then we go over that. But we've had two FBI directors who are long retired. They're in their 70s and 80s. They've been scammed.
0: What what, what were some of their scams?
1: You know, either the grandparent scam or one was a a romance scam. So an
0: FBI director had a romance scam? Scam
1: with someone because his wife had long passed away. And uh, we had uh, someone that was the chief editor of Time magazine. He had spent 35 years at Time. So, I mean, they're very, what was the scam they're that very happened smart then? people. That was a financial investment scam.
0: Uh, T- tell me about one. Like, describe that one.
1: You know, basically just saying that there was building a building up with the hotels and all of that and had all the documentation for it, all the information about it. And this is a very intelligent individual. They read through it. They re- looked at all the materials. They probably had their attorneys look at it. And he thought it was a good investment, it turned out to be. A scam so I mean the most sophisticated scams are the most amateur scams uh, anyone can fall for them so I tell people all the time you know there's nothing to be ashamed of if you've been scammed it can happen to anybody the problem is with seniors for example they don't report it because if say it's a 78 year old woman and she says to herself if I tell my daughter that I lost $5,000 on some sweet state scam out of Jamaica She's going to take over my bank account, tell me I don't know how to handle my finances, and I can't be trusted to do it anymore, and I lose my independence. If I call the police, it might get in the newspaper, and all my neighbors and friends are going to go, well, Helen's really kind of stupid. She fell for the scam. So they don't tell anybody. And so consequently, we only know the statistics on actual things that are reported to the authorities. And documented. We don't know how many thousands of people don't report that they've been scammed out of embarrassment, basically.
0: And and I guess like romance scams are the same thing, where you don't want to uh, admit publicly, oh, this person didn't like you, they just scammed you. What, I, what
1: amazes me on the romance scams, kind of. we do a lot of those on the perfect scam, what happens in the romance scams is, first of all, I always remind these people that they're not just working you, they're working 12 other people. You're just one that of the 12. That makes it worse. <laughs> I know, they're, you're just one of the 12. And uh, they, they meet you online, you beca- you, you're 78 years old, you lost your husband a few years ago, you're, you're kind of lonely. So you start meeting them online and calling. It's very nice, it goes on for a couple of months. Then you start talking to them on the phone and they call and they visit with you on the phone. And it might go on for 12 months and you're saying to yourself, this is great. I mean, the guy doesn't ask for anything. It's just a great relationship over the phone. Your friends, you talk about all kinds of things. And supposedly he's about your age and you have all these conversations. And then one day you say to him, so look, Bob, let me ask you this. If you live just two states away from me, how come you don't come visit me one weekend? Well, you know I would, but the problem is I have to have an operation. And uh, it's $30,000 and I don't have the money. And you know, if I don't have the operation, I don't even know if I'm going to make it. Oh, you know, I, I could loan you the thirty thousand dollars. And then in this particular scam that we interviewed this woman on, in the end, she had sent one hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars of her money to this man. We looked into it. The man was in Greece. He didn't even have a passport to come to the United States. He
0: was a Greek citizen, and he was basically scamming a number of. But uh, wouldn't she think if he's two states over? Oh, I'll drive and be there for the surgery, for instance, or be, or go visit the doctor. Uh, You know, they never do that. And, you know, in her case, at least, she
1: didn't do it. And I don't know if she couldn't drive or she didn't have transportation, but he kept adding more money. Well, they did this, but I have to have this. And, you know, it's unbelievable when I, even for me, when I started working with uh, seniors and starting to look at scams against seniors, the money they lost. I mean, their life savings, they lose their home, they lose their pension. These are people in their 70s and 80s. And it's the same way with military people who come back, veterans who come back from serving overseas for a couple of years, they've saved up all their money and they get hooked into these scams. These people go out and try to scam them. They know they have a lot of money coming back uh, overseas. So uh, that's why I say anybody can be scammed and you just have to really kind of be a little smarter today and a little wiser today before you part with your money or your part with your information.
0: Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned a couple of really good kind of guidelines, like wait 24 hours before making an, uh, a very important decision. Uh, uh, you know, in some cases uh, you have to wait a lot longer, but I, also what you just mentioned now kind of find some trusted third party that you know can verify this is legitimate. Right, and
1: and stop and verify. So, for example, a lot of the scams I call, the phone says that it's a bank that I bank with. And they say, hi, Ms. Johnson, this is the security department at your bank, or we found some suspicious activity on your credit card. It's fine to listen to all that. Yes, okay, how can I help you, blah, blah, blah. But the minute he starts saying to you, okay, I need you to just give me the three digits on the back of your credit card uh, to make sure you have your card with you, Okay, you didn't solicit that call. They called you. You don't know that it's really your bank. So that's the time where you literally just hang up, go get your credit card out, turn it over so the 800 number on the back, call the call center at the bank, say, hey, I got a call. This guy said this was his name. He's from the security department. He wanted to know, no, ma'am, that's a scam. Well, we don't make those calls. Uh, don't uh, do anything. Do not give that guy any information. So I always, when, when I was researching this book for five years, It kept coming back that there are two red flags. No matter how sophisticated the scam is or how amateur it is, the red flag has to come up. So one red flag is that I'm going to ask you for money, but it has to be immediate. So I have to say to you, go down to Walmart, get a Green Dot card, come immediately back, call me back, and read me the number on the back of the card. Uh, Give me your checking account, and I'll draw it off your bank account. Uh, give me your credit card over the phone like in the grandparent scam if you actually said to the supposed nypd guy well you know what i'm just a block from uh you i'll just come on down and pay the fine oh no you can't do that you have to give me a credit card over the phone uh, that's the red flag and the other red flag is at some point i'm going to ask you personal information what's your social security number what's your date of birth uh, what's your where do you bank what's your credit card number when I start, those things start happening and you realize I didn't make this call, I didn't get send this email, they emailed me, they called me. I really don't know who's on the other end of this line. Uh, that's the red flag that you need to then hang up and verify that
0: it's actually who's calling you and actually the people are legitimate. So, so I want to go uh, a couple different directions. Again, I think it's important to state, you know, back in the day, 50 years ago, uh, you were one of the most wanted men in the U S for being, a, okay. you know, what they call a con artist, right. uh, you served time in jail and then as documented in, in book movies and so on, you, you, you advised the FBI and then, uh, built a career advising banks, speaking and now helping the, the AARP with this. Uh, so I want to kind of explore that a little bit. I want to ex- also, you know, you talk a lot about identity theft in here as well. And this is related to what you were just saying about, you know, what's your social security number, all these things, but I'm curious what direction you would go now if you were young and entering into this life. But first, uh, you know, back when you were 15, 16 years old, you know, your, your parents had just divorced. This kind of threw you into, uh, uh, let's call it a, a trauma or a shock. And what what do you do you think that was the obviously it was triggering, but do you think that was the triggering point that set that told you i need to be I need to be free from this emotional distress, and the only way I can be really free is if I take advantage of what assets I have you were you were taller, you were maybe looked a little older for your age, and you were able to sort of take on different identities uh you know, forged checks and and, and so on. Yep. What 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 kind of triggered you into that path?
1: You know, I, I, I never want to use my parents' divorce as a crush. That's why I ran away from home. But a lot of kids ran away from home in the 60s. They ended up in Haight-Ashbury, the hippie scene, the drug scene. I ended up on the streets of New York City. I was 16 years old. I did look a little older. That was the only advantage I had. And I tried to get a job. But the minute I said I was 16, nobody wanted to give me anything but like part-time work or so. So, I started out first with me, how am I going to survive? I'm a 16-year-old on the streets of New York, and it dawned on me that I'm going to have to change my age. I'm going to have to have people believe that I'm a lot older than 16. So back then, we had a New York driver's license that didn't have a photo on it. It was an IBM card. So I altered one digit of my date of birth. I was actually born in April 1948, but I dropped the four, I converted it to a three, and that made How'd me... How do you do that? Just simply by it was by erasing it and removing it and just basically retyping over and over the date of birth on it. And that was very simple to do. And then I, then I tried to apply for some other work, and it was hard to keep, keep a job or enough money to support myself in New York City by myself. And so I did have a checking account uh, with a small bank in Vernon, New York, because I worked in my dad's store, and he put money in the account for me. It wasn't a lot of money, but I would start writing checks. And people would say to me that just knew me, that were my peers, you know, I don't know how you walk in this bank. You don't have an account there. They just cash a check for you? I said, well, no, I usually have to go speak to some guy behind the desk, and he eventually will okay it, but they're a $20, $25 check. And they go, yeah, but they would never do that for me. And then years later, reporters said, well, that was his upbringing, his mannerisms, his speech, his appearance. Whatever it was, it was very easy to do. So when the money ran out, I kept writing those checks. And being an adolescent, I had no fear of being caught. I had no fear of, uh, you know, of um, the consequences of getting caught. But everything I did in that movie and everything in that book that I did was never premeditated or it would have never worked. So... Everything I did was more of an opportunist. I was walking down 42nd Street one day, I saw an airline crew come out of a hotel, and I thought to myself, wow, you know, if I could get this uniform and then go in these banks as this pilot, and of course, this is way before ATMs and even credit cards, uh, they would gladly cash a check for me. So I finagled to get the uniform, I got the uniform, And it was night and day. I'd walk in the bank and they'd go, sure, we can cash check your company ID and they'd cash it without blinking an eye.
0: So, so I mean, there's, there's a, you know, both in the book and the movie there's kind of a technical aspect and a social aspect. So for instance, with checks, you would, um, you know, change the routing numbers. So it became more difficult to, to verify, uh, and that's uh, because I
1: researched everything. So, you know, I, when I started writing checks, then I thought to myself, what do these numbers on the bottom of the checks mean? So when I'd ask a bank teller, they'd go, I don't really know. So I went to the public, New York Public Library. I looked it up, and they were routing numbers, and they acted much like a zip code on an envelope today. And basically, I knew there were 12 Federal Reserve banks. They were numbered zero one 1 to 12, 0, 1 being Boston, 12 being San Francisco. That in Manhattan was 0, to 1, 2 being New York, 1 Manhattan. So I thought to myself, now, if I was to take this O off and put a 1 there, then this routing number would become twelve one, which is the 12 Federal Reserve, San Francisco, first branch, Honolulu, Hawaii. So if I write a check in New York, it's got to go all the way to Hawaii before anyone knows it's no good and then has to come all the way back to New York. So that should give me a lot of extra days to cash checks before anybody knows my checks bad. And, and then and you of would just it, switch and banks
0: and... Right, switch where you were going and so on. Yeah, and it
1: it worked. Uh, I went into a, a bank in Chicago, and I opened a checking account. Again, if I premeditated this, it wouldn't work. I went in with the intention of saying, okay, I have this phony ID. I'll open this bank account with this ID. I'll give them $100 to open the account. In two weeks, they'll mail me 200 printed checks in a box with this name. Then with this ID, I'll cash all these checks. So I walked in and opened the account, and the new accounts person came back and said, here's a receipt for your $100. Here's some temporary checks. We'll get your printed checks to you in about 10 days. So being the young kid, I was inquisitive, and I just said, I noticed you didn't give me any deposit slips. I know they come from the check printer. They'll be in the back of your checkbook, putting your name, address. I said, well, uh, what if I wanna make a deposit tomorrow? Another problem, you see the table in the lobby and there with all the forms on it? Just help yourself to a blank deposit slip. I write your account number, and I gave you, and use those to get your printed ones. So I walked over, and I took a stack of them. I went back to the hotel, and I kept thinking to myself, I wonder if this would work. So I bought a what was called a Burroughs 1000 magnetic encoder. It looked like a big uh, calculator, and I encoded my account number the bank had assigned to me the day before on every one of these blanks. I then went back to the bank, put them on the shelf in the lobby, and everyone who came in put money in my account because I knew that there was... On the blank deposit slip, when it went to the reader, if there was no magnetic number, it would go to the optical reader to read what you wrote. But if there was a magnetic number, it would ignore the optical written number and would post that number.
0: Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldicher, would you like to apply to be VP of en- Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because of a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So, so a customer would come in to make a deposit. Uh, they would write their, their number their, in their number. It would ignore that, go to your number, right, and deposit the money into your account. Wouldn't that be easy to? Once they realized there was a problem, wouldn't it take seconds for them to realize what happened? Yeah, but I don't know that they fixed it in any
1: short time. All I know is I got away with about forty thousand dollars within twenty four hours. So and- I wasn't really worried if they fixed it or not, but. It was, but I I think it could, it, it, years after I'd done it, I thought I thought to myself, you could still do it. Because to your point,
0: you knew, also knew bank tellers didn't even really know what those numbers were. They didn't even know what those numbers were. So they're
1: just running it through the machine, and if the machine, if it had no magnetic number, it would have ran what you wrote in your account. But because it had one, it credited my account. And so they gave you a receipt, and off you went.
0: There was another one I read about, um, either in Catch Me, if you can, or one of your other books. Uh uh you would um i guess there was a box where people would make deposits you put up a sign um box you know broken or whatever that
1: was at the boston logan airport and actually steven spielberg filmed that entire thing he didn't use it because the film was already two and a half hours so he (laughs) didn't use it but there's a funny story i'll tell you but there i was sitting in the boston airport it was about a quarter to twelve at night i had missed the last flight and i watched all these people, the ticket counters, the rent-a-car people, taking their money and receipts and putting them in these big bank bags. Then they'd zip them, close, lock them. They'd put them under their arm, and they'd walk around the corner down to the bank that was in the terminal. And they'd stick their key in the night box, and they'd open it, and they'd drop the bag down the chute. And they'd make sure it went down. Then they'd close it, and they'd lock it one right after the other. So I got this bright idea. So the next day, I went and rented a bank guard uniform at a costume store. I hung a beautiful sign over the night box, said night box out of order. Please leave de- deposits with guard on duty. Everyone did. They just came up handing me the, the bag and, uh, and I left with the money. But, uh, you know, I was <laughs> How working. much money like that day was that? Uh, it was a lot of it was checks and receipts and stuff like that and credit card receipts. But probably there was a good, you know, 35, dollars $40,000 in cash. And, and I
0: multiply by eight to take into account of inflation. It's like $320,000 uh, in today's. Yeah, it was a lot, of, a lot of money.
1: And, um, and, but then when Steven Spielberg, this is the funny part, when he went to film it out of JFK here, he's and he tells the story. He said, here I am with about a hundred and some of my crew all around huge lights and cameras. I've got the boom cameras. I've got everything. Got the deposit box set up and I've got Leo in a guard uniform standing by the box with the sign night box out of order. And he said, I'm getting ready to shoot this this scene. And this woman comes up and hands Leo the bag. And Leo <laughs> ah. goes, Miss, you understand? We're shooting a movie here. I'm not really a guard. Oh, oh, okay, sorry. And then he said to Spielberg, see, that's how he got away with it. I mean, you know, he said it was unbelievable. But it happened in front of them with all these cameras and all these lights so, there.
0: So, okay, so this is also related to back then... And, and we'll talk about the difference between now and then, but this is also related to the social engineering tactics. Like it's not, so you were doing all these technical things like buying this right. bar encoder, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there's also the social component. You had to convince people to give you a free Pan American pilot <laughs> yeah. uniform. You had to convince people to accept, you know, pretty high you know, high value checks. Uh you know, in the book, there's someone cashes a seventy five hundred dollar check for you, which is a a lot of money for a kid to be be cashing. So what's what do you think gave you kind of the innate social ability? What are those social abilities? Why do people fall for them?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, they refer to me as a father of social engineering. Obviously I was a sixteen year old kid. I didn't know I was social engineering anybody. But all, back then, all I had access to was a telephone. That was the only tool you could use. Today, there are so many forms of communication to socially engineer people. And social engineering was in the case of the uniform. You know, I, did, I totally ad-libbed that. I called up the switchboard or answered, Pan American Airlines, how can I help you? And I said, well, I'd like to speak to somebody in the purchasing department. And the guy came on and said, yeah, my name's uh, Joe Black. I said, I'm a pilot with Pan Am out of, based out of San Francisco, I have a problem. Oh, what is it? Well, we flew a trip in here last night. We're going out to today. I sent my uniform out through the hotel. Have it dry clean. Now the hotel and the cleaner said they can't find it. I've got a flight in about five or six hours, and no uniform. Well, don't you have a spare one? Well, you're back in San Francisco, but I, I never get it here from my flight. Well, you know this will cost you the price for uniform. Uh, well, I understand. Well, hold on. He came back and he goes, you need to go down to the well-built uniform company on Fifth Avenue. They are a supplier. I'll call them and let you know that you're on the way. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to know. So I went down to the well-built uniform company. Guy fitted me out in the uniform. And then the funny part of that was that he says to me, I said, how much do I owe you? He says $286. I said, I'll write you a check. Oh, no, we can't take any checks. Okay, well, I'll just pay you cash. No, we can't accept cash. You need to fill out this computer card. And then in these boxes put your employee number. Then we bill this back the uniform allowance. Comes out of your next Pan Am paycheck. I
0: said, "Oh, that's even better. Go ahead and do that." So, because you had already people. had had from some other way uh, a Pan Am employee number that you had, you had. I just saw how out. many
1: boxes it was and knew how many numbers it probably and just oh, made up easier. a number. Yeah, <laughs> that was all there was to it.
0: But but then but then you have to kind of almost what I would say, commit to the act. Like you go into the airport, you're a Pan Am pilot. So you didn't just use the uniform to look more respectable cashing checks in a bank. You flew millions of miles. But again, (laughs)
1: never dreamed I could do that. And Spielberg filmed that out at the old TWA terminal, because that's where it took place. That's where the first idea came. I had gone out to the TWA ticket counter and I said, I need to purchase a ticket wherever I was going. And she, the agent said to me, well, are you riding or are you buying? I don't understand. Are you riding the jump seat or are you actually purchasing a ticket? I said, Well, no, uh, I could ride the jump seat. She said, Okay, well, then I'll give you a jump seat pass. Then I realized I could fly for free.
0: You weren't afraid anyone was going to call up Pan Am and look, I just need to verify you're a Pan Am pilot. Or... Yeah, you can't be afraid. I mean, you to have confidence you're going to get
1: away with it. And everything I did, I learned from other people. I, was, I asked an Eastern Airlines flight attendant out at LaGuardia one night. I got off the plane with her and As we were walking out, I said, well, we're going to go to dinner, but I got to uh, go see if I can cash a check at one of these uh, banks over here. Well, you need to go to the bank. Just go to the Eastern Airline ticket counter. I said, well, no, I don't fly for Eastern. It doesn't matter if you're an airline employee. uh, They'll cash it for you as a courtesy. Just have your airline ID. Well, that was, I bought at the biggest steak in the world that night because then I would go to the airport and I'd go to everybody, TWA, Eastern, I'd cash checks. By the time I got around these big airports, eight hours had gone by and I'd go back around the other way again, write those checks again. So, I mean, I learned everything as I went along. None of this stuff I knew. I just
0: picked it up as... I went along doing it. So when you were flying, though, on a so so they would also, as a courtesy, give you free flights on Eastern or wherever right. if you were a Pan Am pilot. You never flew Pan Am because that was almost too close to the fire. Right. But um even at Eastern, though, and and you learned the lingo. Like if they asked you right. what, what you flew, you could say what you right. flew. But did they ever ask you like, oh, did you train here or did you train there or no? And you what serve I did because forces?
1: yeah, that was the other thing. I learned very quickly that ninety nine percent of the pilots were military trained. So you didn't want to say I was in the Navy, I was a Navy pilot, Air Force pilot, because then they would have started getting into what kind of plane, where missions did you fly. So I said, no, I actually went to Emory Riddle uh, School in Miami, which is the largest private flying school where a lot of airline pilots today are educated and trained. But back then there were very few that came from Emory Riddle, so there was nothing to talk about. That was just a school. None of these guys had ever been to Emory Riddle, so that took away the whole military aspect of it. And... uh, you know they love to talk shop i what happened many times when i would get in the jump seat the jump seat's not a comfortable place to ride so if there is a seat open anywhere on the plane the flight attendant will come up and say to you i do have a seat back in coach uh, if you want all pilots go back because it's not comfortable to sit in the jump seat so many times i would just take that and go back i was more about the free ride and i didn't really want to be up there with them where i could be asked a lot of questions and stuff Uh, so I would just go, I would go to the back, but if I was up there, they love to talk shop. So, you know, mainly I would just listen and I pick up all this uh, jargon from them and all this stuff. And I remember what they said and use it.
0: Let's say the conversation felt like it was going to get dangerous for you. And this is, I think where some of the social engineering comes in. What would you, how would you act like, what would you do to kind of give yourself a, a safe landing, so to speak? That's, that's the creative
1: part of, um, what I did, and I don't think that you teach someone. I think it's just something that comes natural. So if I was standing in London in the Kensington uh, Hotel where the Pan Am crew stayed, um, and I was standing there alone, and another Pan Am pilot saw me, and a real Pan Am pilot came up to me and said, hey, Bill Black uh, out of San Francisco. I had to immediately be able to say, right, so-and-so out of JFK, and knew what the base was, but the opposite of him. And then he might say to you, oh, JFK, so uh, you know uh, Captain uh, John Rogers, and of course, always the first time, it's a real person. So you go, oh, yeah, I know John very well. All right, and how about you know uh, Bill Elliott? Second time, still good chance it's a real person. I flew with Bill a few times. So I don't know him real well, but I flew with him a few times. Uh, what about Jack Robbins? The third time's the test. You know that there is no Jack Robbins. They're just trying to see what you say, and you go, nope, don't know Jack Robbins. But that just came natural to you. You knew when they were a test and, and not a test. And social engineering comes down to, for example, a lot of people get social engineered now uh, because they say to them over the phone, uh, Mrs. Roberts, I only need the last four digits of your social security number. Oh, sure, that's, um, that's no problem. That's 0815, terrific. And by the way, I notice you have a real Southern accent. Oh yeah, I was born and raised in Alabama. Oh, really? You know, you kind of sound like me. I'm uh, 48 years old. Oh, no, I'm a lot older than you, actually. I'm 59. Well, you just told him where you were born and your date of birth. That's the first three digits of your Social Security number. Those first three numbers make up that formula of where you were born and where your date of birth really? is. I didn't know that. Yes. And it only changed in 2013 when Social Security changed that formula. So anybody prior to 2013 being issued a Social Security card, that's what that number means. So... That's what social engineering is, getting information out of you that you think nothing nothing about.
0: I feel I feel also there's a there's a kind of likability component to social engineering. Like why you know, at the very base case you were describing earlier, you would sometimes get cash checks cashed, but your friends couldn't. And I think that's because people would like or trust you. What what do you think are the components of likability that you use then when you were in the middle of a scam? Yeah, you have to be
1: likable. And this is what's scary today is that
0: Fifty years ago, there were
1: con men and con women, and that stands for confidence, which stood for confidence men. And basically, you had to deal with someone one-on-one. You had to be in front of them, and you had to gain their confidence. And so you had to be likable. You had to dress well. You had a good vocabulary. People normally turn to you. Um, today, we, the person that you're dealing with is in Moscow, sitting in his pajamas with a laptop and a cup of coffee, He will never see you, you will never see him. So there is no compassion, there is no emotion. Where 50 years ago, the con man might have said, I'm not gonna take this old man for all his money. I don't want his home and all that. I'm just gonna take some of his money. There was a little bit of compassion. Today, there's no compassion. They'll take all your money, they'll take every penny you have because they don't know you, they don't see you, you don't see them. There's none of that emotion involved. And that's what makes the technology and the scams today so much more scarier than they were 50 years ago.
0: And, and, and I want to, I want to, um, cover that, but I'm also, I'm, I'm just a a little more curious about your, when you started learning about all this and and your knowledge, it, it didn't seem to be all about money for you. Yes. you were able to get significant amounts of money in these ways, but then it seemed like you wanted some kind of validation. You like that feeling of being looked at as an airline pilot. You, You, you then became, a pediatrician yeah. <laughs> for several years you became an, an attorney yeah and, ag- uh, and again you know
1: people people say to me you know I saw the movie and then years later I read the book and they said the book was so much better because in the book you explain how you ended up doing all these things and again uh, not premeditated but the opportunist so I after the pilot you know I basically hung that uniform up and I moved to Atlanta Georgia and I moved into an apartment complex And on the application that I was filling out, it asked occupation. And I didn't want to write airline pilot because they were looking for me as posing as a pilot. So I just wrote doctor. I didn't fill in any of the other where do you work, all that. I just wrote doctor. But I had an inquisitive apartment manager, and she said to me, oh, you're a doctor? I said, yeah, but I'm not practicing medicine right now. I left my practice out in L.A. to come invest in some real estate I have. Oh, really? Well, what kind of doctor are you? And I said, well, I'm a medical doctor. Oh, really? What what type of medical doctor? And because it was a singles complex, which back then they had the single complex, no one there had children, I said I was a pediatrician. And that was going to be the end of it. But then I moved in and I met a pediatrician, and he introduced me to other people. And then I found myself having to read a little bit to keep up conversations with this guy. And then one day he said to me, hey, uh, there's a doctor up at the hospital who had a death in his family, and they're looking for somebody to cover the shift uh, for a couple of weeks, it's an administrative capacity, so you don't need your license or anything, or go through any paperwork. It's just a matter of uh, doing an administrative job, and then that that thing of what I was doing, I said to myself, "That's a challenge. I like to go see if I how if I can get away with that." And so I did it. Uh, I met a a girl who um, was actually in the movie. It's different, but in real life, it was an Eastern Airline flight attendant whose father was the Attorney General in Louisiana, and I was ta- taking her out on a few dates and. People would say, that, back then I would always say, I used to fly for Pan Am, but I got furloughed, which was very common back then. And, you know, sometimes you get furloughed for a year, eight months, two years. So I said, I'm on a furlough. So then I, I don't know why I brought it up, but I said, my background, well, what? Because most pilots can only work 80 hours a month. So they are usually our accountants, some are lawyers. So I said, well, I have a law degree, but, you know, I really don't practice. Oh, so then when I met her dad, the dad said, what are you going to do the next several months? I said, well, I don't know. He said, well, you want to come work in my office? I mean, you have to take the bar. And I said, yeah, that'd be great. So I, I, you know, I went and studied and I uh, researched. And back then, Louisiana didn't require a law degree to take the bar. And I took the bar and I passed the bar and I went to work. So Again, you really
0: were a lawyer. It really, didn't require really was a, a law lawyer.
1: I worked civil cases under Attorney General P.F. Grameon in the civil court. But I was two things. One, I was always smart enough to know you can't do this forever. So even if I was comfortable saying, wow, this is great, I'm working here as a lawyer, nobody knows anything, I was always smart enough to know they're going to find out or someone's going to catch up with me that's chasing me. You can't do this forever. So I was always smart enough to know to move on uh, from it. It was always just a challenge, can I get away with it? And once I did it, you know, then that challenge was gone and I was smart enough to say, I'm not gonna stay here and get caught or, you know. And you know, when you live a life of that kind of life, it's a very difficult life. I think that Leo uh, DiCaprio said it best in an interview. He said, Frank Abagnale was probably the greatest actor that's ever lived because he literally acted every single day. He got up in the morning and he took on a role until he went to sleep at night. And then he got up the next morning and took the role on again. He was acting constantly. And I think that's true, but because you're doing that, you have to always be make sure that everybody likes you. You have to be the nicest guy, you can't have any enemies, you can't have somebody that's jealous of you or anything because the minute someone starts looking at you in a negative way, then they start to find fault with you and they start to question things about you. So that living that chameleon existence of having to blend in but can't really get anybody mad or have to be such a really nice person all the time constantly, uh, it's just a real, uh, t- you can't only carry it on for so long and you have to move on.
0: So was it a relief after, so you went to jail for a while, you served some time, you know, you were finally caught. And then the the FBI, um, uh, as the story goes, you know, looked to you for some expertise in some cases they couldn't solve. Were you able to, re- was it a relief to A, finally be? validated for something you really were an expert in legitimately and B were you able to help them solve some cases?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, um, you know, I I had served time in the French prisons where I was arrested, then I was extradited to Sweden, I served time in the Swedish prisons, then when my sentence was up in Sweden, the US authorities came and got me, they brought me back to the United States. A US federal judge in Atlanta sentenced me to 12 years in federal prison. I served four of those 12 years at a federal prison in Petersburg, Virginia. And when I was 26 years old and the government offered to take me out of prison to go to work with the government, uh, I just saw that again as the opportunist. You know, I know that people would love me to say, oh, I was born again in prison. I found God. Uh, Prison rehabilitated me. I saw the light. You know, I don't think that I was any different than the guy that went into prison. And again, here came an opportunity and I said, Uh, yeah I'd rather be there than in here so I took the opportunity and I went out I don't think I was a changed person until I when I went to work with the FBI I worked undercover for a few years and one of my assignments was in Houston Texas and I met my wife and I kind of fell in love with her but she knew me as this other person that I was supposedly undercover as so when it was over, I literally broke protocol to explain to her, I'm not this person, I don't have this degree, I never went to school here, I'm not from here, this is my real name, this is my background, and this is why I'm having to do this. You know, And uh, she believed in me, she trusted me, eventually she married me against the wishes of her parents. I've been married for 43 years, and they gave me three beautiful sons, five grandchildren... Uh, she really changed my life, you know, getting married and the responsibility of some having the responsibility for someone else, uh, bringing a child into the world. So what's amazing to me now today that when I look back on my life, I know that people are fascinated by the things I did between 16 and 21. But I'm 71 and I look back on my life and I say to myself, I'm not so fascinated by the things that I did, but the fact that I did them, I went to prison, I paid my debt i came out of prison i've worked for the fbi for 43 years for over four decades uh i've been married to my one and only wife for 43 years brought three sons into the world one is an fbi agent he's been 14 years in the bureau now um it's just amazing to me, you know. I've got to develop great technology that went into paper and plastic. My first twenty years at the FBI—that's in our driver's licenses, our car titles, our birth certificates, our passports. To look at a passport, and say this is my technology that's in this passport, uh, and then the last twenty years dealing with cyber and having developed software with technology companies that are used in 80, 80 countries around the world. Like what I kind do, of software? What, what? Well, for example, um, I developed a technology called the 41st Parameter. It's used by banks in 80 countries around the world to detect fraud in transactions. And now I have been a long, long advocator of we have got to get rid of passwords. So back in the 90s, I started writing about We have to eliminate passwords. I mean, passwords were developed in 1964 when I was 16 years old. I hadn't even done these things. And here at 71, we're still using passwords. And if you look at ransomware, malware, all the breaches that occur, it all comes back down to passwords. And so, you know, I believe that passwords are for tree houses. They're not for the Internet.
0: Because let me ask you this. Like, all day long, every day, everybody gets emails like something like, Hey James, are you in this video? And if you click on that video, who knows what happens? Maybe it installs a, a hard to find keystroke right. logger on your computer and then it gets all your passwords. Right. Um, it, it, and it does seem as simple as that, like probably it passwords is sim- are being uh, stolen every single day. And you know, my rule of thumb is never to click on any link someone sends me, but right. still who knows. And, um, what, what, what would re, what would replace them though? So what happened is so about five
1: years ago, the technology company I work with that developed the forty first parameter, which eventually we sold to Experian. So that's how it got out to eighty countries around the world. It's a Brit- Experian is the people know it as a credit bureau, but it's actually a British company that uh, owns the credit bureaus and all the data. And They have analyst. all of
0: your data about right everything. everything. They know and, how many and,
1: strawberries you're eating. No, and last they month. love they love the technology. So I went back to that same company and said, look. I think we need to develop no passwords we don't really need passwords we can identify people from their telephone their device and uh, we can be assured that it's them but I said in order to do this we have to invent anti replay which no one has ever invented and I said can that be done and the CEO that I worked with a guy named Ori Eisen to develop the 41st parameter uh, he said, I think I can do that.
0: What's, what's auto replay?
1: Uh, Anti replay is that is, for example, if you take a picture of yourself on your iPhone because you want to use it to access your phone, that biometrics uh, turns into your picture, turns into a long stream of letters and numbers like this. Mm-hmm. But if I capture that and I replay it, then I'm you again. So that really, biometrics doesn't work because you can replay the biometrics over and over. Same way when you send a wire, if I replicate the exact wire at the exact time and the exact information, I can resend the wire or misdirect the wire because they don't have anti-replay. So it was very important to develop that. This company did. Um, Then the technology got backed by Microsoft funded it, along with Kleiner Perkins, which is the largest uh, uh, investor and company in the world. And now, we developed a company called TruSona, T-R-U-S-O-N-A, which stands for Trupassana of the individual. Now, I'm just an advisor to the company, I'm not a partner, I'm not a shareholder, I'm just an advisor to the company. Uh, Because of my relationship with the government, there are limited things that I can do, financially. So. I Basically, uh, we developed this technology, and you probably have seen now on television an ad where Serena Williams is running through a market. She's in her jogging outfit. She only has her phone. She sees a necklace in the market, and she wants to purchase it, so she walks over to a Chase ATM. She takes out her phone. She presses the Chase app on her phone, and she gets her money, no card, no number, because the bank has identified her from her device. And that's TruSona. That's basically what it does. It's the ability. And there are different levels of it. So that's two-tier authentication. You can go all the way to four-tier. If there's somebody who's wiring $30 million from an account to another account, they would be in a higher tier using that technology. But uh, I think we will now start to see, I mean, Aetna uses Uh, TruSona. Many of these airlines are going to switch to uh, no password. I think in the next two, three years, we'll get rid of passwords. And that was a long desire of mine to eliminate that so i mean during my career i've had the opportunity to do some great things and i think most people only know me from the movie they know i'm the guy in the movie and where the movie ended that's all they
0: know they don't really know anything else about me so, but the, you know. the good thing is the the movie alludes to what you do in the future because yeah at the at the end it really establishes yeah. your expertise right and that you're 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 helping whatever your motivations are you ended up helping. And, and I didn't know about the undercover stuff, which sounds interesting, but you know, back then you were able to say, Hey, I'm a doctor or, Hey, I'm a lawyer or, Hey, I'm a pilot. Cause this is my uniform. And here's my ID that nobody knows. I forged nowadays identity theft is different. It's more about having the right numbers, the right, right. wire information and so on. If you were 18 years old right now and thinking to yourself, you know, I'm going to, scam what would you do
1: I'd be looking to and I'm sure someone's going to do this the next big breach I think the real big breach we're gonna see is where they actually breach everyone's search engine I mean billions and billions of search engines now if you're a plumber up in New Rochelle New York with four employees and you've been a plumber all your life nobody cares about what you search on your computer but if you're the mayor of New York or the president of Chase Manhattan Bank or some distinguished uh, senator or congressman, and I say to you, I have everything you've searched on your computer, whether it be pornography, health things that use research. Uh, I'm going to make it available to, and to the public unless you pay a ransom. Uh, that's where I think you're going to see some huge problems with ransoms uh, ransom. Because the big thing with now cybercrime is gaining ransom, getting people to pay you money for information. And uh, I think that would be the next big thing we'll see will be that.
0: Don't you think that's probably already happening given how probably easy it is to gain access to someone's keystrokes?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's so, you know, first of all, I I remind people every day that everyone in America has had their identity stolen already, including myself, because we know that statistically that over a billion identities have been stolen. There's only 340 million people live in the country, including babies and, and children. So. Uh, You have to assume your identity is already stolen. The question is, because they steal billions of identities, will they ever use yours? Or is yours something they want to use? Or are they going to use somebody before you? But they've already used your identity. And typically, people who steal mass data, so when we look, first of all, understand that every breach, every breach occurs because somebody in that company did something they weren't supposed to do or somebody in that company failed to do something they were supposed to do. Hackers don't cause breaches. Hackers just look for open doors, and every day there are thousands of open doors. So, Equifax didn't update their system, Microsoft sent them security patches, they didn't put them in. Uh, their, their CISO, their Chief Information Security Officer, had a degree in music. Uh, they didn't know what they were doing, and obviously the hacker got in, stole 148 million uh, credit, uh, credit reports and information. Uh, when you steal, uh, hack into Home Depot and Target, and you steal credit cards and debit card information. You have to get rid of it immediately because it has an extremely short shelf life. But if I steal your name, your Social Security number, and your date of birth, you can't change your name, you can't change your Social Security number, you can't change your date of birth. So the longer I hold it, the more valuable it becomes when I go to sell it. Though there always is a three or four year delay before that information comes to surface. So when they turn around and say to you, I'm going to provide you one year of credit monitoring for free, that's worth us because nothing's going to happen in a year. First of all, you already told the criminal, I'm giving everybody one year of credit monitoring. So they're not going to do anything for a year. But typically, they don't do anything for three or four years before it happens. But all that is just open doors to hackers. And if you look at any company from the largest corporation in America to that plumbing shop up in New Rochelle, there are weak soft spots in every company. And all hackers do is look for that. So when you look in your house, your Samsung TV, your Samsung remote control, uh, those are weak spots. Your cameras. Why is that? Because we design, for example, the device you talk to in the morning. What time of day is it? Uh, What's on TV tonight? Order me this from Amazon. That's a voice-activated device. So a hacker only has to manipulate it slightly to then listen to everything you say in your house the minute you start saying any word. How would the hacker manipulate that? They're able to do it because it has no technology in it to prevent it, and what I have found in my career is that we invent a lot of great technologies without ever going to the final step, and the final step is to ask the simple question, how would someone use this in a negative way? Companies are only interested in one, what's my return on investment, and how quick can I get to the marketplace with this product? Instead of saying, how can I prevent someone from misusing it? So many of the technologies, like the security cameras that people put on their house because they want to go away and look on their iPhone and see what's going around their property, those are easily hacked into because no one ever went the next step. Instead, we've got to make sure no one can
0: hack well, into it. Well, how? Them. Because those devices are on Well, they're not the encrypted.
1: They're, yeah. You know, one day years ago, I was walking into an um, a electronics, big electronics store, and I got parked my car. There was a kid next to me in a Mustang, and he had his laptop on his lap. And then out of his window, he had an aluminum wire with aluminum on it. And so I went in the store, and you get the greeter, meet you. And I said, are you a security guy around? He said, yes, is there a problem? Just like speak to him for a minute. So he went and got him. The guy came back. I said, let me ask you this. Are you using any hand devices in your store right now? Well, as you can see, the lines are real long. So what we do is we take out these devices. We take your credit card and swipe it here and then print your receipt. I said, I assume they're not encrypted. Uh, I don't think so. But there's a guy out in the parking lot and he's picking up every one of your signals on every card you're swiping. So you might want to go check
0: that out. And how is he doing? Because he has a device that's just looking for all packets that are going out of of that particular router. He knows that, again, he knows that
1: When you buy those devices, those hand devices, if they're encrypted, they typically run about $850 to $1,200 a piece. If you buy them unencrypted, they're about $250. So, most companies don't encrypt them. So, you can pick up those signals. All you have to do is then be within a certain distance of the store. And I could tell by the antenna that obviously was trying to pick up signals. So, that's why I asked them if they were using those type of devices. And... When he said yes, I said, and you probably got a guy. Well, when I came back out of the store, the police were there and all that, and, and obviously that's what that guy was, was doing. So, yeah, the, the, the technology is incredible. Uh, so, uh, there's the information we give away, so let me give you an, uh, an idea. We get about 5,000 phishing emails every day in the United States. Uh, losses you mean from, individually? or uh, Total. Of every day there are about 5,000 phishing emails. I feel like I
0: get that amount every day. Yeah, I know.
1: And the losses are about $12 billion a year from phishing emails. And we do track, the ones that we track go out to about 155 different countries. So, obviously, there are people in other countries that are doing the phishing. But they've become so sophisticated that I'll just share with you a couple that I've seen. One is from the CEO to the CFO of a technology company, ironically, in Southern California, 4,000 employees. And simply the email says to the CFO, Good morning, Steve. First, let me thank you for a wonderful dinner at your home last night. My wife, Helen, and I truly enjoyed your company. Please thank your wife, Susan, for us. We need to do that again soon. As I had mentioned to you over dinner, I'm traveling to Nashville, Tennessee this weekend, and I will be gone all week to attend a conference. I'll be back in the office next Monday. I forgot to mention to you over dinner that I'd like you to wire $35,000 to this charity this morning. I promised they'd have it by 11 o'clock. Here's the wiring instructions. Take care, Jeff. Um, The second email is a consumer, just one friend to another friend. Hi, Barbara. Great having lunch with you today. Um, When you get back from Disney World, please give me a call and we'll have lunch together. I hope you and Randy and the kids have a great time this week. I look forward to seeing you. By the way, I saw this thought you'd really enjoy it here's the link now what's happened is they go to social media because the ceo has a long time ago said his wife's name got a picture of him and his wife he registered for that conference two months earlier so he said i'm going to that conference the cfo has said his wife's online this woman said her husband's name their children's name they were going to disney world so they're taking all that pertinent information to give it, again, so much credibility that you wouldn't even question. I just had dinner with the guy. It must be him. And that's where it gets real scary, that we give away so much information about ourselves and don't realize that people will take that information to use it for them.
0: Yeah, like I like how you mentioned in, in this book, me if you can, um, the don't post pictures of yourself on vacation while you're on vacation because then they know your house is empty. Or just for example,
1: in the United States, 71% of the nation's Fortune 500 companies look at your Facebook page when they go to hire you. And about 58% of them make a decision to hire you or not hire you based on what they saw or read on your Facebook page. So I tell young people, if you post a picture of yourself nude on a beach with a bunch of drug paraphernalia all over your body and wine bottles and whiskey bottles, And then you apply for a job say with the government they're gonna go to your Facebook page they're gonna see that they're probably not gonna hire you if you're 12 and you make a racial slur because you're 12 and you don't know any better ten years later your employer is gonna see that and if you say something about someone's sexual orientation because you're 13 you don't know any better uh, someone's gonna read that so I always tell them what you post what you say stays now you can close your account you can erase it you can delete it but it is retrievable So before you post, before you put the picture up, before you make the statement, you gotta stop for one minute and ask yourself, do I really want someone to read this? As we've learned recently, everything that goes to the cloud that we were told could not come back can easily come back from the cloud. So Capital One, I learned that the hard way. And uh, information is always retrievable. When people say to me, I have a foolproof system, I said, that's a ridiculous statement because if you believe you have a foolproof, system, you failed to take into consideration the creativity of fools. Uh, there is no foolproof system. All you can do is you develop things to make it so difficult for someone to manipulate it, they'll go somewhere else.
0: Well, and I, I, I notice you practice what you preach. I looked up your children's Facebook pages before this interview, none of them have anything <laughs> except <laughs> their one profile photo on yeah. Facebook, or at the very least permissions are all carefully blocked. Right. And I, I'm not on any social media
1: myself. I'm not on LinkedIn. I'm not anything like that. But I have three sons and five grandchildren. They like uh, social media. So I, as their grandfather and their father, I just basically tell them how to use it properly so they don't put themselves uh, at risk. And... um But, you know, again, this all comes down to education and educating people. They don't know this unless someone has told them this. You know, when I go to a college and I speak to 2,000 students and I give a speech and at the end they do the Q&A, they start asking me, how do I use uh, social media safely and all that? And I tell them, the next day I get all these emails. I immediately went back to the dorm. I took my date of birth off my Facebook. I took my uh, place of birth off my Facebook page. I readjusted my pictures on Facebook. They're smart enough to do it, but they need to understand, why do I need to do that? Someone has to explain to them, here's the risk. They don't understand what the risks are unless someone has told them that.
0: Yeah, and I think the general philosophy on privacy is that why should companies and the government have all this information? But the reality is it's the enormous, I mean, there's a lot of people out there trying to scam you every single day. Right. And that, that's really the tricky part. But what do you think about, like, for instance, you know, San Francisco says you're not allowed to use facial recognition technology in San Francisco anymore. Like, what about, you know, that kind of higher level of, of privacy invasion?
1: Yeah, I have to left. We, we, we say, uh, we complain about facial recognition tools and stuff. And I'm not real comfortable. I don't like, you know, the, a few months ago I went to London. So I walked on, uh, it was a Delta flight. I'm n- used to having my passport with your boarding pass and you walk up and they look at it and then you board the plane. Well, I walk up and the lady says, look look in that camera. And it was facial recognition. They never looked at my passport, never looked at the boarding pass. They said, go ahead. But they were just recognizing. I was a little uncomfortable with that, that Delta has that information about me. But how many people, 80 million to be exact, signed up for FaceApp because they wanted to say, okay, um, I'm 20, but i like to know how I'm going to look when I'm 40. And no one read, which they never do, The contract, they just scroll down and say, I accept because it's free. 80 million people signed up. It's a Russian website. And now the Russians have 80 million Americans' biometrics as well as their picture. And not only that, but they know what they'll look like five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Uh, When you read the contract, which I do uh, when I I do a PowerPoint presentation, I bring that up and I say, let me just read you this paragraph from the contract. Where it's irrevocable i can use it in any way i want to use it i can manipulate it i can store it i can change it i can sell it uh you know you would have never signed that but people don't pay any attention they just immediately accept it and go on so now you know it's we make it so easy for for people to um, steal from us and uh, steal our information misuse our information because uh, we just don't really follow it through. We don't think about it and we don't have that mind set to think about So I try to use my mindset to say, I do think about
0: it. So here I'm telling you, this is what I think. And you should be thinking that way. So here's, here's a, uh, a, 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 I, what I think is a scam that a friend of mine almost, you know, I was kind of in with it step-by-step step cause he was asking me questions all along the way. Some charity reached out to a friend of mine and said, we'd like to have you as a speaker at our conference in the middle east and it was some head of a charity blah 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 yeah. you could google the charity everything seemed legit my friend asked for an enormously high number as a fee the people said of course you know this is a drop in the bucket for us we'll, we'll we'll even send you you know the first third immediately to get you to sign the contract so you, we know you're going to come and speak uh we just need your wire info to know where to send the money and that's when he stopped he didn't give his right. wire info. But I don't understand this, and maybe this is my own naivete about it, but when you give someone your wire info, all, are you giving them more than, like, they? yes, they could then send money to you, but can they take money out of yes. your account? And that same email that
1: you said you got, I get, I've get. i gotten several of them, because I am a public speaker, and they come and basically and say the same thing to me. I, of course, work through a speakers agency, so I refer them to them, But I tell the agency you obviously know this is a scam and they go yes and they're basically just looking to get the wiring instructions but think about this if you were to go write a check tomorrow to the drugstore for nine dollars and hand the clerk the check on that check is your name and address and phone number your bank's name and address your account number at your bank and your routing number into your account that's your wiring instructions and then you put your signature on that check, which is the actual signature the bank has on your card. So just me taking that check and making a copy of it and then taking that information, I can wire money out of your account. I have but, your wiring instructions, I have your signature, et cetera.
0: And it's the same when someone's wiring into your account? Like if they could wire in, they can They can wire out. Wire out. So, How do they do that? Uh, ba- basically,
1: just by having all of the proper data to wire the money to you or to wire the money out of your account. So, if I say to Blue Cross, uh, look, instead of me writing you a check every month, you sending me a bill, Uh, here's my account information and wiring instructions, you just would deposit the money out of my account every month. You go in my account, you get the money and take out whatever the fee is every month so I don't have to write you a check. That's basically all they're doing. So, they say to me, give me a copy of your check, a voided check, so I have the information on the bottom of the check and allowing me to access into your account. So, those scams are all about getting, getting you to give them the, the final information. It all sounds good. They use legitimate sites, so if you go look them up, everything looks very realistic. But they're waiting for you to then have said to them, okay, you can wire me the money at this account, and I'll give you that account. It's the same way when you might, I don't know, there's a very popular scam, and I get these. I've probably have gotten four or five of these. You open up a FedEx or a Priority Mail, and inside is a check. That's all there is is a check. But it's made out to you, and so the one I got last time was said Bosch and Lam, and it was twelve hundred dollars. So I knew it was a scam. But most people get it and go. Well, oh, we got a check from Bosch and Lam for twelve hundred dollars made out to me. I don't know what this is about, but I'm gonna deposit it. So they take it to their bank and deposit it, and then the next day they get. as Soon as they deposit, they get a phone call that says, "Hi, this is Bosch and Lam. Unfortunately, we sent a check to you by mistake. I assume you received it. Uh, yes, uh, you have that check." No, I deposit in my account. Well, that check was sent to you by mistake. So, we, for the inconvenience we caused you, please keep two hundred dollars of that check, but please wire back the twelve of the thousand dollars to us today. And they go back and they wire the thousand dollars. The check turns out to be no good, and the bank comes back to you and says, um, "You owe me this money." Uh, well, no, I was in this scam. I'm sorry. You were the last endorser of the check. So I really don't care who scammed you. The law says whoever the last endorser of the check is the one who is liable for the check. So you owe
0: me $1,000. Do you think this statement is true? If someone wants to target you, you have no hope. (laughs) I think you can have hope if if you're just a little smarter and you
1: don't, before you'd part with any of that money or that information, and you're really not sure who it is, they came to you. You didn't go to them. Uh, then you need to try to find and check check that person out and make sure that it's legitimate. And the the good part today is we have so many resources. I mean, you can google so many things and you can check so many things out today uh, even on your on your own behalf without having to go to the state attorney general office or the better business bureau. So, I think it's just a matter of taking the time and I'm just saying to someone if you're going to part with money, especially a lot of money, or you're going to give someone a whole lot of information about yourself, It's worth taking a couple of minutes to make sure that that's a legitimate request or a legitimate place.
0: But to your point, though, about earlier, Alexa, let's say the Nest thermometers, Samsung, whatever, all these things in your home are also voice activated or tracking your behavior in some way. And they're all probably hackable in some way or other, either through social means or technology means.
1: That's why I don't use
0: them. So, so but, but everybody uses them. Yeah, everybody uses them. I, I use everything. Right,
1: and uh, and so then you just hope that somebody doesn't, you know, is not doing it to you. And of course, podcast
0: listeners, I take that back. I don't use any of those things. Right.
1: <laughs> so, I mean that <laughs> that's all you can do. But again, what I try to do is when I go out and deal with Fortune five hundred corporate customers, developing that technology. I try to encourage them to make sure they go to the final step with that technology and try to make it as extremely difficult for someone to do those things instead of just Simply putting it out in the marketplace and not worrying about that. And we overplay technology. I don't need my refrigerator to talk to my toaster. They've been getting along for years without having a conversation. So sometimes we do a little bit too much technology that we really don't need. It's an overconvenience of things we need. I know, read yesterday in the paper that people are starting to complain now to car manufacturers there's too many gimmicks in the car, there's too many. Sad things that make it just so easy to, to, to manipulate the car without ever having to know how to drive the car. So I think you you can be way too much technology
0: sometimes. So so, uh, I just want to say again, uh, scam scam me if you can. Simple strategies to outsmart today's ripoff Artist by Frank Abagnale, uh, who was, of course, his his life was was helped was the basis of the movie uh, Catch Me If You Can. Starting starting Leonardo DiCaprio as Frank here. This is an excellent book. It's it again, is like the Bible of all the scams and possible thefts that could happen to you right now and and all the ways to avoid it. it's it scared me reading this. Like I realized there was probably about a dozen different things I have to change in my life pretty quickly, it got it got me really nervous. For instance, there's there's one major thing. I, I actually am so nervous I can't say what I'm going to do here, right. but I have to change immediately because of what you wrote. Well, you know, um, one, when I wrote that book, I wanted
1: it to be also as a reference so that if you were someone who something came up later on and you said, well, you know, this doesn't really sound right, You could look up that scam and then say, yeah, this is exactly what they're doing. They're scamming me out of this. I can see it in the scam. So I wanted it as a reference book. When I wrote a book called The Art of the Steel, Tom Hanks was on the set making Catch Me If You Can. And one of the guys working on the set said, I guess you read his new book. You mean Catch Me If You Can? Of course I read it. No, no, no. His book called The Art of the Steel. No, I didn't know he had another book. Yeah, you should read it. So Tom Hank tells the story that I went and bought the book. And he said, my wife and I read in bed every night. We really don't talk a lot. We just read. And I kept getting up and getting highlighters. And my wife finally goes, what are you doing? Oh, you can't believe this book. Uh, everything I'm doing in my personal life and in my business, Playtone, that I own, I'm doing wrong. I need to change a lot of stuff I'm doing. And he, uh, he then told me that story when I met him. And I said, any chance you'd let me put that comment on the book cover? I said, of course I will. And so, on the cover of Stealing uh, the Art of the Steal, it's from Tom Hanks that says, "If you have money in your pocket, you need to read this book." And Tom Hanks, and it, it's true. And and basically, everything I do, I try to basically educate people, and I try to think the way that they would not think, so that I can think for them and say, "You look at it this way," I look at it this way. Uh, you know, which do you think would be the best way to do it? And and that's all I try to do.
0: Well, you've had such a fascinating life and, uh, uh you, I think you really epitomize the word genius because you've been so creative in so many different areas and, and you, you, you've been through it. You live to survive the, the, you know, what happened and then you've, you've gone on to help so many people, uh, all of your books, uh, but this latest one, scam me if you can, is, is seems like it's 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 your biggest and most thorough in terms of identifying all the scams and what you could do It's should be in everyone's library i have one more question so in one of your in one of your books might have been the art of the steel i again i've right. read everything to prepare you talk about uh this thing in the 90s which i actually encountered which is people particularly in in, in new york city around the Flatiron district is what was, it used to be called the printing district because there were so many print companies right and i heard about this guy who was using his he had the highest end copy machines printing equipment and he would basically um get you know paper as you mentioned in the book like rice paper very similar to currency and he would print five ten and twenty dollar bills and just spend them in the local deli no people always checked hundred dollars bills. no one checked a five dollar bill ten dollar twenty dollar bill and he i don't know how long he did that for all i know he's still doing that but i knew then he was regularly doing it and and the way you describe it too, like you can you can wash money off to to then print money yeah. back on it's another way to get the paper um, it was was so fascinating what what what's the state of forgery right now It, it is again uh, so much easier than when I did it because
1: i didn't have the technology that, uh, that exists today. so when I forged checks, which is a good example. You know, I had to go to school for eight months to learn how to operate this Heidelberg printing press, which Steven Spielberg found one. It was in the film. They were 90 feet long. They were 18 feet high. It really required three journeyman printers, but I built scaffolding on the side so I could get myself on top. I was just a teenager. I could run the length of it and get back to the other side. But there were color separations. There were negatives. There were plates. There were chemicals to make the plates. Today, you open a laptop, you walk over to a hotel room. You see a big billboard says delta airlines you sit back down you bring up a diagram of a very good looking secure check you go to delta's website you capture their logo you put it on the check in color you maybe take a delta jet taking off in the background and screen it deep into the check and you put delta delta across in 15 minutes you created this beautiful four color looking check so then you go down to Office Depot, you buy some security check paper with a watermark in it, eight and a half by 11. You put it in your inkjet printer, and you print out these beautiful, gorgeous four-color checks. And we live in a way-too-much-information world. So 50 years ago, you'd have walked up to me on the press and said, Frank, these Pan Am checks you're printing, they're amazing, the color, the detail. Uh, but how do you know what Pan Am banks? Well, I don't know. I just made up a bank's name, Chase Manhattan Bank. Well, how do you know what their account number is? I have no idea. I just made up some numbers. Well, how do you know who the authorized signer of this check is? I have no idea. I just, you know, used some guy's name. The difference today, because we live in a too much information world, all forgers call their victim because their victim, through social engineering, tells them everything they want to know. So I call Delta and get them on the phone, like speak to someone in accounts payable. Yeah, how can I help you? Getting ready to pay an in invoice you sent us. I need to wire your instructions. Oh, we bank at SunTrust Bank in Atlanta. Our account number is 176-8532. Hang up, call back, ask to speak to someone in corporate communications. I wonder if you send me a copy of your annual report. Sure, we mail it out today. Page three, signature of the chairman of the board, CEO, CFO, treasurer, controller, white paper, black ink, glossy pink, scan it, digitize it, put on the check. So we live in a way too much information world. Technology has made it very simple to do. So, yes, today, color copiers, scanners, you can easily replicate money good enough to fool most people. And unfortunately, people have been scammed to believe that that pen they market with is worthless. That doesn't do anything. That pen is simply designed to check the pH level of the paper. So people who counterfeit money use very high pH level paper. And so that pen is just a waste of time. It doesn't really work. Uh, so, you know, again, like you said, which is very true, if I keep it into 20s, 10s, no one's going to look at it. No one's going to pay any attention to it, and that's what they do.
0: You've scared the fuck out of me. I know. It is scary. Thanks a lot, Frank. Thank thanks you for thanks, having Frank me. Thanks, now, This is such an enlightening interview. I wish there's so many other things I want to ask, but I want to respect your time. Stop by again next time you're in New York. And good luck on this book. Scam me if you can. It's a great book. I highly encourage everyone to read it. Okay, thanks. thanks. Appreciate it.